All right, God knows your heart. You know, there, there's, there is an expression that seems true to life, and I put a lot of things on your handout today, so you should be able to maybe follow this. Here's a, there's a lot of expressions that are not true to life, but this one really seems to be true, right? You can fool some of the people some of the time, but not all the people, what is it? All the time. That's right, you know it, you've heard that. And, uh, and what it simply means is that bit by bit, people tend to figure you out. Now, not always, Sometimes there's a surprise, right? Sometimes uh, that's the way it is. Even marriages like that. Have you ever noticed that? I mean, I think I really know Faith quite well. I, I mean, I love her. Been married a lot of years now. Seems like a dream. I go like, yeah, it can't be that long. Can't be. I do a redo like golf, right? Redo, you know. <laughs> go like, I know her pretty well. But sometimes, just sometimes, it's like, oh, what was that? She'll say things or do something, and I'll go like, I thought I knew her, and I had no idea she was thinking that, you know, sort of like that. But in time, people generally figure you out, figure us out, and, uh, and, uh, and they come to know the truth about us. At least they form an opinion and, and so on. But you know that's never true with God. God doesn't have to wait and watch and see, although he's the great watcher of men. Job said that, O God, O thou watcher of men. He was lamenting his suffering, uh, but uh, God doesn't have to wait. I said, I wonder what Terry's going to do this week on Tuesday. I wonder what Thursday. Oh, I think I'm getting an idea who he is. Never. He knows instantly. He's always known even before the foundation of the world. He knows intuitively. He knows exactly. And Jesus tells us in our text here that God knows what's in our hearts. In fact, he knows it, Jeremiah, better than we do. Even our best motives sometimes can be twisted a little bit, a little bit of flesh or self in there. Our condition is so bad. I mean, really it is. You you all look pretty good today, but your condition is far worse than what you look. And you think, I look, I got a tie. I wore today's communion. I'm going to wear a tie today. Well, my condition is far worse than what, well, unless you're thinking it looks pretty bad. But it, it, our condition is, is worse than you would ever imagine, and God knows it ever. He's never fooled by our words or actions. You know, guys like, whoa, he got away with that. I didn't realize that. Never, never. He knows what we love. He knows what we're like. He knows all about us. And God made us, catch us now, he made us to love him with all our being. You know, that's why God made you and me, to love the Lord our God with all our heart, our soul, and our strength. That's why you exist. That's it. The human heart was made to love God supremely. God made our hearts to have only one supreme love, one predominating uh, predominating love, a controlling influence over all other and all other lesser loves in our heart. I love, uh, I've already said I love Faithy, but uh, if she ever moves to the place where she becomes that predominating number one spot, I've made an idol of her. You see, that place is only for the Lord Jesus. So we're to love the Lord with all our heart. Predominating, controlling love. And and lesser love, certainly so. I love the fellowship. I love you. I love my life. I love my grandbabies in their place, right? But the number one love, that's why, what's the great command? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your soul. That's why God made you, and that's why God made me. That's why we exist. And when we refuse on your sheet, I have it. When you, we refuse to do so, and when we sin, we do at that moment. We discover that all the lesser loves can never provide the the satisfaction that we yearn for. I get no satisfaction, no satisfaction. And I tried, and I tried, and I tried. You ever hear that? (laughs) Song of the year, two years in a row when I was a kid. I tried to play it on the guitar. I I think I played it. There's only like three notes with it. That's about it. And I tried, but never Listen, you try and do that. You try and find uh, your great predominating love in something other than the Lord, and you'll always come up wanting. It'll never satisfy. Never, never, never. A lot of us uh, 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 love football. Too many Steeler fans here, but that's okay. We're not in heaven yet. Uh, But uh, 
I, I saw an interview with Tom Brady. You want Tom Brady, probably the greatest quarterback to ever play the game. Uh, I think it was before he was 30 years of age, he had three Super Bowl rings. Amazing. And then in that interview, it said, you know, I have three, three rings, but uh, Super Bowl rings, but I keep wondering in my heart, there must be something more. Now, I got news for you. you you're never going to play in a Super Bowl. I can tell by looking at you. You're not going to make it. Some of us, that opportunity was long gone and was never there anyway. <laughs> Danny, you might have. But uh, as a quarter, Danny's was a great Ohio quarterback. But uh, that's gone, Dan. I'm sorry you're out. I'm out, and we're all out, and that's the way it is. But we'd say, like, you know, someone like Tom Brady's the top of the world. It's, I mean, life's got to be great. But if football and championships are that one predominating love in your life, it will never do it. Never. Reread the book of Ecclesiastes over again. See Solomon, who was on, he was a better than Tom Brady in every way. And he said at the end of the day, it's all vanity. Vanity of vanities. It's a breath, a Hebrew word, habel, a breath. Is anything less than that? No. It's empty. It's meaningless. It's vanity of vanities. God made us for himself. That's why we are to live. Now, we can have lesser loves, but a lot of times we rearrange it and get out of order, off balance. Nothing, not money, not pleasure, not fame, not stuff, not popularity. Uh, Though we may often uh, wander, and we do in our sinful ways, into these lesser loves and try and make them the great love of our life, they can never deliver. They can't. Because we're packing too much on it, it was never made to deliver that only the Lord is able to satisfy our hearts with joy and blessing and and happiness that only He can give when He's the great love of our life. Well, at the end of of it, we are left saying what? When we, we discover these lesser loves and move them to the predominant place, they don't deliver, we go to say, is that all there is? Remember that other song? That, that you wanted to jump out the window after you say, is that all there is to a fire? Is that all there is? Like, uh, that's it, lights out, I'm out of here. It's like suicidal or something. Well, that's, 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 that's the thought, is that all there is, all is vanity. Well, the Pharisees, having eavesdropped, that's what they're doing here in our text, we're going to notice they're eavesdropping. You ever eavesdrop? Greg told us down in the South, now it might be an overgeneralization, probably is, but he says, speak very quietly at a restaurant. I go, like, why? Well, Zabolski are pretty bombastic. We're like, hey, I'll take some ketchup, you know, please. <laughs> hey, how's your day going? Right. Speak quietly. Why, Greg, why? He said, because everyone's business is everyone else's business, and they're all kind of, and it's not E.F. Hutton. They're all kind of like, I think I hear something, and it goes around town, and this kind of thing, just friendly chit-chat, right? That's what the Pharisees are doing here. And text tells us they're eavesdropping. The Lord Jesus has just taught his disciples. Look at, look at uh, chapter 16. How do I know that? Look at verse 1. Uh, Jesus said to his disciples, and he went on to give the story about uh, the, the unjust steward. Remember that two weeks ago? Jonathan spoke last week, but uh, two weeks ago he began. He said to the disciples, they're listening to it, and then, uh, and then they have a reaction to it, and that's our focus text today, uh, chapter 16, verses 14 through 18. In fact, let's read it now. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, eavesdropping, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourself before men, but God knows your hearts, for what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. And everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Well, some have called this a bridge between two parables. 
the parable we just looked at uh, two weeks ago on the unjust judge, and what will be the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, if it is a parable, if it is, it's unusual because the parable never has a proper name like Lazarus in it, but it's a bridge of four verses showing the response of the Pharisees, the religious leaders, to Jesus, who have been eavesdropping as he teaches, warning the disciples against loving money. And they react to his teaching by sneering at him. Well, there are three insights that, uh, uh, as we observe Jesus confronting the unsaved religious leaders who despised him. Three insights. There are many more, but let's just look at three. Verse 14 is the first one. The Pharisees, in verse 14, remind us that we too once hated God and his word. I mean, we're in the picture here. This is our natural condition. This is our, our birthing condition. You know, what color eyes? Well, blue eyes. What color hair? Oh, there are no hair. Well, does he have five fingers? Does she have five toes? Yes, 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 yes. Her eyes are big and they're wide and, and this and that. And she's long and weighs. And, and what else? Oh, she's a sinner born under wrath. Really? Yes. According to the scriptures, we're born that way in Ephesians chapter 2, 1 to 3. We're in the picture here. You're in the picture here. Just not the Pharisees that are enemies of God. They're apart from Christ. They're lost. Even though they're, they're brilliant, well-educated, religious, in religious garb, they're lost. They're lost. And the Pharisees remind us, too, that we once, if you've come to know Christ as your Savior, prior to that, you hated God and His Word as well. Before salvation, we are spiritually dead, blind, totally depraved. Doesn't mean we're as bad as we could be. Just means that every element of our body is tainted with sin. And we are rebellious, aren't we? Little children are rebellious. They come from big rebels. That's where our children come from, big rebels. Fruit doesn't fall far from the tree. I was at my sister's house the other night. My mother came down to visit for a week. Don't get to see my mother very much, but we spent about four hours. And uh, my sister Lori had the, the largest, largest peaches I ever saw. I mean, I go, what is that, a grapefruit? It's like a, no, it's a peach. He said a lot of the peach harvest was destroyed, but the ones that survive are large. Have you, have you seen the peaches? And she said, it's grown in the area here. I said, she said, you want one? I go, like, do you mind? And she said, no, take it. So she gave it. I said, I see that thing with a bowl of vanilla ice cream and peaches thrown in there. So I thought about it all the way home, driving up from Maryland. And about 1.30 in the morning, I just, uh, I would have eaten the whole thing in the ice. I couldn't get it all down. I, uh, anyway, fruit does not fall far from there. Where is he going with that? Fruit doesn't fall far. That's right. Fruit doesn't fall far from the tree, and, and we are born lost, and we are rebels. We are born from our parents all the way back to our first parents, and we are rebellious against God. Jesus A. has just taught the parable of the shrewd manager, beginning in 16.1. Jesus is God, the Son of God, standing on earth. Think about those dimensions. I mean, sometimes we rush right by that. Here's God in flesh standing on earth. Now, at that moment, he's controlling all the universe, Colossians 1. He holds it all together. He's standing there. He's teaching, right? He's teaching his disciples. They eavesdrop. I just remind you, number two, he's just not, his is not just another theory or idea. Sometimes we think of that, sort of the smorgasbord of ideas, Sometimes you go to the university and take classes, and you like this professor, that professor, this instructor, that, or that author, or this, or this. And we like, oh, we get all these ideas. Aren't they neat? Aren't they all equal? Wait a minute. They're not all equal. I've had some great instructors and professors. I've received a great trust in uh, my formal education and training, and I, I count it that way. Uh, but uh, I dare say none of them was the inerrant teaching of God standing there in their midst. This isn't just enough. Thank you, Jesus, for your opinion. Sit down. We'll hear anyone else have an opinion. His opinion is supreme. There is none higher. And so he's just given the final teaching through a parable to the disciples on love God, not money. And here's the creature, right, lost, even though in religious garb, and they're what? They're despising God. 
They're despising the Lord. The word is they're sneering. I can think of that. Sneering. Sneering. Now I get the idea of a kind of a showing your teeth and a little bit, you know. Some of you know that I was a paper boy for a lot of years. I used to deliver the Courier Express seven years, 4.30 in the morning. My father thought it would be good discipline for me. <laughs> 365 days a year, every day, the Courier Express went through. Snow, snow's half the year in Buffalo. I put the wagon, I put it on a sled half the year and dragged it around <laughs> and uh, so on. But then when I'd collect papers, the dogs hated me. They really did. Uh, they hate mail. They hate anyone that's you know, territorial, you know, they want to protect their loved ones in the house. And I had dogs chase me, bite me, sneer at me, and I sneered at them. Some of them weren't impressed, some were. But uh, here's a creature, religious garb, supposedly representing God, sneering at God made flesh. That's, that's what's going on here. That's what the text says. Sneering. Well, I'm reminded, beginning with our first parents, God speaks, remember? Adam and Eve. God said, and man soon rebels. God spoke, don't eat of the tree of the fruit uh, that's in, of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Satan comes along and said, did God really say? He's been attacking the word of God ever since. Listen, the, the, this, this is a faithful, reliable copy in English of God's holy, wonderful word. And Satan's been attacking it from the beginning. Fills churches with men that don't believe it and women that in Sunday school class and teach don't believe it. Well, let's just learn the greater lesson here. Let's hug or something. I don't know. They lose their Bible. A lot of times it's, loose, it's easily lost. Has God said? Well, is man's opinion equal? Well, it's, all opinions are not equal. This is the Lord's teaching. And they had the idea their opinion uh, was somehow uh, greater than the Lord. After all, they got the, the, uh, the Synagogue University Rabbinical Training degree, and they didn't agree with him. Well, his opinion was not just another theory or idea. Among others, his was truth. It was exactly truth. And so they needed to embrace that. And now open disobedience before the face of God is our natural inclination. Keep your friend. Let me just remind. Look back at Ephesians chapter two. Some of you know this passage very, very well. Uh, Ephesians chapter two. Paul reminds the Ephesian believers uh, of their natural condition by birth. In verse one, and you, you, you Ephesians that are now believers in Christ, you were dead in your sins, your trespasses, and in your sins, of which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by birth or nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But one of the great changes, beginning at verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, we were made alive together with Christ. For by grace are you saved. We were by nature uh, the children of wrath. We were by nature rebellious. Listen, people don't need more education. That's the, that's the dope of our day. Throw more money into the education. Why, why, is, why do we have a problem here? It's not education. People need new birth. They need Christ. And they, with Christ, they get a new heart. And prior to that, rebellious completely. After that, the rebellion's been broken, though when we sin, it's still ultimately rebellion against God, but God is changing us. We are His project. He is making us, He is making us into the image of Christ through new birth. Praise God for the gospel and the power of it in our life. I'm not what I once was. I'm not what I'm going to be, but thanks God, thank the Lord, I am what I am, and He's growing me in grace. It took Him seven days to make the earth and the moon, six days, seventh day of rest. He's still working on me, the kids' song. 
Praise God for that. Well, see, the religious leaders reveal their hatred and disdain for Jesus by sneering at him. Their hatred would come to full fruition and come in full view as they would demand him soon uh, to be crucified. Release Barabbas. Crucify him. Crucify him. Now listen, he asked, what would man do if he could ever get his hands on God? He, sh- he did it already. And we would join in in our lost state and kill God. That question's already been answered there at Calvary. Hatred for the Lord is shown in many ways. I remind you of that. Sometimes it's very polite. A lot of time with most people. They don't walk around cursing God and shaking their fist toward heaven. Though at some points they do that. And I've seen that. And so have you at points. Or they'll damn God. I hear that a lot. Right? Sometimes it squeaks through. But a lot of times it's really polite. I mean, we want to be polite in our godless rebellion. So we don't say too much. We just kind of ignore him. A lot of people do that. God made us. He holds the earth in place, blankets it with the atmosphere. It's glorious. The right pressure, the right sun, 93 million miles away. It warms our face. The rain comes and the food and all of this. We live in God's world and we're just like, no, just ignore him. He's not really relevant. Oh, really? And then when something bad happens, you go, oh, where is God in this thing? And then we shake our fist. Where's God? And it comes to the surface foments. We are rebels by birth. We are the Pharisees prior to Jesus. We are in the picture. My, I think I've told you before, my grandfather uh, loved that uh, Polaroid. I, I don't see him anymore. Do they make Polaroid cameras anymore, Ron? I don't know if they do. Yeah, the land camera, Dr. Land developed that. It was so neat, right? You do your Polaroid, and some of you don't know what I'm talking about. I can tell you, like, what's he talking about? It's, you take a picture, and you pull the thing out, and wait a minute, and take it off, and there's your picture. It's kind of, kind of, kind of a neat idea when they still had pictures. Now we don't have pictures. My mother said, we don't have pictures anymore. It's digital age, Mom. Yeah, but I can't hang that on my wall, she said. <laughs> but, the, but my grandfather always had a problem with it. I don't know what his problem was, but he always cut our heads off. Grandpa, do another one. Do another one. There, you're missing Dale there. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Something like that. There's no pro- you and I are in this picture completely. We are the Pharisees. We are the, we're the sneerers listening to maybe the gospel, listening to maybe bits and pieces. We're in the picture here, rebelling against God, sneering at Him. Well, new birth changes us, doesn't it? And now we love Him. And this is how we know that we have come to know Him, that we love Him. John's first epistle. We, we know that we know Him because we love Him. He's changed us changed us. You hear a lot today about business, and business is off in the recession. And what about these companies? A lot of them overseas and, and shipping out jobs and all that kind of thing. What business are you in? And it's important for businesses to define what business they're in because it always seems to be changing. What business are we in? Just think of IBM, right? They were one point in the printing business, and then in, now what in the world are they in? I don't know. They're in some sort of informational counseling, consulting business, software and the like and all that. You've got to redefine it. Listen, God is in the business too. You know what his, He's in the business of changing people. He changes rebellious people like me. And he, he, he's patient and gentle, but boy, when he, he smacks me and gets my attention, boy, he does. And you too. He's changing us. He, why? He's making, you're not ready for heaven yet. I mean, if he saved you, he's changing you, and he's giving you a new heart, new desires, and you know that because you love him. And before you were like, you ignored him, or you shook your fist at him, or sneered at him, or just rebellious in many, many ways. And the Pharisees remind us that we too once hated God and his word. You know, the Apostle Paul was like that. He was so zealous in his hatred of the living God, he sought to to, to hunt down the Christians and, and beat them and kill them and throw them in jail. That's what he calls himself after God finally saves him in Acts 9. I'm the least, I am by far the least of all the apostles, for I persecuted the church in my religious zealousness, which was ultimately rebelliousness against the God that is, and there's only one God, and his name is the Lord. 
Well, we see that here in the Pharisee. Well, what's the second insight we observe as Jesus confronts unsaved religious leaders who despised him? In verse 15, we see that the day of judgment is coming when God will expose uh, the hearts and lives of every man and woman who has ever been. Here, we see but a glimpse of of it as Jesus peers into the sinful hearts of of men and women, and rebukes them. Now, keep your finger in Luke, but look over at Hebrews chapter 4. I want to show you this. This is a great verse for you to memorize, Hebrews 4. Most of us know somewhat of four, uh, chapter 4, verse 12. The Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Most of us know that, uh, that and we, we love that. And so on. But look at the end of verse 12 where it says, it, the Word of God discerns the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And look at verse 13. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. All of us, every man, woman who has ever been, will stand before the Lord and give an account. And uh, we see just a glimpse of it here as the Lord uh, exposes and warns and rebukes these, uh, uh, these uh, eavesdropping Pharisees who were in love with themselves and their own self-righteousness. For Let's read verse 15. And Jesus said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men. They had an outward religious uh, type of, uh, of show, of works, And they felt pretty good about themselves. They kept their Sabbath rules and all of that. It was external. It was external. It was external. It wasn't a heart issue. But God knows your hearts, Jesus tells them. For what is exalted among men, that's the externals, that's this religiosity, that's this form of worship, but there's deadness on the inside. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Makes God throw up. You say, does God have a feeling about that? Yes. Anger or throw up, this parading about like holier than thou, this idea of religiosity when the heart is far from it, this duplicity, it makes God sick is what Jesus is saying. By inspiration, Dr. Luke tells us that the, uh, the Pharisees' uh, diagnosed problem was that they loved money. Actually, it's the word, they loved silver. It was silver coinage in that day. It's the exact Greek word for silver, money there, that they loved money. That's their, their problem. That was the primary love of their life. That's why they rejected Jesus' teaching, you cannot love both God and money. Impossible. It's like trying to work for two bosses. Do you ever try and do that? You ever have two bosses? Raise your hand if you did. Is that fun or what? That is no fun at all. I, I talked to one man the other month. He said, I, I work for five people. I was like, how do you do that? He said, like, I'm, my mind is scrambled. I, 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 I'm completely in utter confusion as to what I should be doing at any one moment. <laughs> That's the idea here. If you try to love both God and money, like the Pharisees, it's like trying to work for two bosses. And Jesus said, that is impossible. They were trying to straddle, the Pharisees that is, this impossibility. Impossible. Thousands try to do what Christ says is impossible in our day, maybe millions. Therefore, many Christians that try to do that live in a constant state of discomfort. They have too much religion to be happy in the world because they know it won't satisfy, but they're sort of straddling on that side. And then on the other side, too much of the world in their heart to be happy in Jesus. And so the Lord said, that's impossible. You can't do it. Don't, you can't love both God and money. There's only one predominating thing that will, uh, that, that will be effective in your life, and you were made to love God. 
Now, Dr. Riken, I, I, he writes down, here's some warning signs that I suggest that each one of us examine as we battle this thing, because this is an ongoing day-to-day thing, especially in 21st century America, that loves money, spells success with dollar signs. In fact, some suppose Jesus was being jeered at here by the wealthy. They were wealthy Pharisees. That Jesus was poor, didn't even have a home. And anyway, if uh, you're right in that, why is it that you're uh, like indigent? You know, I mean, uh, we, you, you don't even know what you're talking about. You haven't earned the right to say anything about money because you're poor. And after all, all poor people hate people with money. And so you try and get in, well, what, what, was, what were they thinking here? And, and maybe that was part of it. Anyway, Dr. Reich, and I've listed on your sheet, I thought these were good as I worked through this in my own heart in life and felt the conviction at different points. Number one, when you and I are anxious, we worry about money. We're thinking about it a lot and not trusting God to provide for our needs today and tomorrow. Be careful. It's a warning sign. We may be in love with money and the power that it may provide to make us secure. I mean, if we're focused on it. Money, 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 money. Then, then it's uh, that number one spot. And that's a daily thing. I mean, we're getting crammed on every side. You know, you, you show me the money. That's the what, American way, right? All right, well, we can't swear it off. We have to live in a world that we use an exchange. I don't want to go back to bartering. But what wears its place? It's something that you and I have to constantly stay on top of. Constantly. And if, if it's consuming us in our thought, our security then is in a dollar sign, not in the Lord. And so we have to be careful. Number two, when our lives are so full of work, working all the time, right, that we have to say no to Christian service. Oh, I can't. I love to do that. I can't do it. No, no, I'm, you know, like, then are we in love with money, Dr. Reichen suggests, and given it mastery over our schedule? Maybe we've done that. I've said that before. The man, one of the men that had the, one of the biggest influence, a Christian man in my early days, because my father wasn't saved, it was, uh, was Mr. Wayne Gibbs. And Mr. Gibbs is in heaven, and uh, his son just died this year. Uh, Paul was uh, in my class, and Paul had contracted cancer, and went through that whole chemo thing, and it was the Lord's uh, pleasure uh, to be glorified in, into taking Paul home. So Paul has joined his dad and his mom in heaven, uh, even so in my age. Uh, you go like, wow. Well, Mr. Gibbs, I remember he worked for Sears in downtown Buffalo, and uh, he uh, worked with the youth at church, junior high and high school, and just uh, const- not, a, not a flamboyant, great teacher, but was like a solid, steadfast guy, a man who loved the Lord, who taught us, who laughed with us, did a picnic with us, took us to sports events, and even showed up at my high school football games. And his boys didn't play football. I'd be like, wow. And there was an opportunity for him. I remember because I couldn't understand it uh, because my family was quite a bit different uh, insofar as work and Work, 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 you know, that whole thing. My dad loved work. My dad, that kind of thing, never had time for the Lord, wasn't saved at that point. And, and so you can understand in high school the, the disconnect in my own life when, when uh, it was, I found out uh, through, another, through another of the adult workers, because he didn't say it, but he had turned down a promotion at Sears. He was, a, he was in lower management. They were trying to move him up. But as he weighed the larger salary and he weighed, uh, weighed the time commitment that it would take away from his ministry in his local church, he waved it away. I go like, he did what? You know, you can, you can imagine it coming out of my family like, you mean he turned down a bigger paycheck so he could be with us? Kind of like, what, what's he thinking? You know, but at the, in a very real way, and the Lord will only ever know how much of His influence is a part of others built into my life that, it, that I live in Harrisburg today, in the Harrisburg area, and ministering, and, and, and because He had heaven's values, and He didn't want to say goodbye to His ministry and His church because His work would have taken... Most people say, I'll give me the job, and I'll see you later on that. You see, God demands that we worship Him and Him alone and and to live to serve others. But money demands that we work for what the world has to offer and live for ourselves. 
It's a bad trade. It's a bad trade. Now, you have to have enough and live prudently. Don't spend everything you have. And if you need to work it more at times, do that, sure. But don't live for money. Be careful. There's a fine line there. And, and it's, uh, it's not always clear where that is, you know. I wish it was clear. And the Lord will have to lead each one of us in this thing. Riken's word, you know, it's easily takes mastery over our schedule. Number three, when we find our thoughts returning again and again to something we're hoping to buy. Now, be careful, Riken says, we're, we may be in love with money and its power to get us what we think we want. Sometimes that happens, you know. We, uh, we want that toy or this or that or that outfit or we just uh, keep focusing on that. Now, there's nothing wrong with working and saving in, in its place and, and all that kind of thing as you weigh that before the Lord and you get excited about uh, some of you are, are tech uh, gizmos. Stephen, I'm not pointing at anybody, but you the love things and, and uh, the little computer gadgets. Gadgets, that's it. And some of you are gadgets. You've got to have all, got all that. Nothing wrong with that in its place. But if it occupies, you wake up 24, I can't wait to have this or that, or a car, or that outfit, or this or that. Be careful. There's a line there somewhere. Riken says, be careful about that. You may have fallen over. It may be that number one spot. And it's power to get us what we think we want. Number four, when we find ourselves wishing we had some material possession that God has given to someone else. I wish they were dead, and I wish I had that. Yeah, or, the, you know, like the, uh, the prodigal. Father, I wish you were dead. Give me my inheritance. I want, I want it. I want that stuff. We are in love with money and the status or pleasure it seems to bring. Number five, when it seems difficult or even impossible to give up something we want in order to give a full biblical tithe or to make a sacrificial gift to, to a Christian ministry or work. We are more in love with money, according to Reichen, than we are with the gospel and its ability to change the world. Be careful about that. Now, these are questions for self-examination on it. Lord, help us on this so that we don't, we're not giving to G- what Jesus said is impossible. It is impossible to, to love both God and money. You can. In verse 13, no servant can serve two masters. Either he'll hate the, he'll hate the one and love the other, or he'll devote it to the, to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And so the Pharisees are listening to this. And Jesus is going right to the heart of the matter and exposing them before him. Well, be, the, the, Jesus rebuked them. He knew their hearts. He knew their hearts. And they were concerned about outward appearances and appearing religious and holy to impress others. And God hates that. He absolutely hates that. Parading around as such. He hates that duplicity. I pray. You know, we we love people of integrity, but only God makes a man or woman a man of uh, integrity. Uh, that's oneness. The idea of an integer or integrity is, uh, is a wholeness or oneness. That what you see is what you get. It's been one of the great prayers of my life. Lord, I'm so easily given to something otherwise. I want to be what's on the inside is on the outside always. And I don't change with the environment. Make me that way, Lord. I don't want to have a fear of man that I blend in. I want to fear you only and, and serve you and, 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 and be a blessing to all others. That's a 24-7 thing. We live in a world that's no friend of grace. Jesus rebukes them. He knows their hearts. They are concerned with uh, this. They lowered the, 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 the law. They lowered the law to make it so that they could, in fact, uh, keep it. When we are given to think that uh, also that the love of money is a small thing, a small moral failings, it's far down the list of the dirty dozen or something else. But according to Jesus the, uh, in this text here, that the love of money is an appalling betrayal of our love for God that sets us squarely against the gospel of salvation and the kingdom of God. It's a serious, serious matter, one that should cause us to do uh, spiritual self-introspection before the Lord, asking the Lord to route that right out of us and do it daily. Well, they, were, they lowered the law. They made it so that they could keep it. They paraded around in a self-justifying righteousness. 
Uh, they loved the comments of the people. They loved to be seen out in the streets praying. They, all of these things. And in that, they, they really destroyed the law, as it were. Well, this event, finally, is a glimpse of the final judgment, isn't it? I mean, the Lord wasn't confused. The Lord didn't say, now, who are you guys? What's your name again? What's your problem? No, no. They stood before him, and he rebukes him. He warns him, and he says, here's your problem. And this is where you are. And he pierces right through, and he knows the intents of the heart. He knows our intents. He knows your intents. He knows mine. We've been found in the balances and in ourselves. We are found wanting. We're found wanting. I mean, sometimes we may think, well, I'm doing pretty well in this thing called the Christian life. I'm growing in grace. Be careful. Be careful. Pride goes before a fall. And not only that, it's all of him beginning to end anyways. Listen, we are sinners lost until saved. And then when saved, we're growing in grace. We still battle sin, and the sin that easily besets us. And we ought not feel like, I'm doing pretty good today. Get ready. Get ready. I can't, that's what makes the gospel so great. It's the gospel for sinful people like you and for me. You see, the, the Pharisees tried to lower the law like, like, a, like, a, uh, like a high jump if you're watching the Olympics. And boy, that's been quite a gold harvest there in the swimming pool and other places. Wow. And gymnasts, they're really doing well, the girls and, and all that. But lowering the bar. You ever do, uh, you ever do the uh, high jump? The Fosbury flip and all that. Dan, did you try doing that? Yeah, you know, I did. I tried. I, yeah, I tried it all. And then it goes, ah, you're no good at any of them. Then get over there. <laughs> but the high jump and all that kind of, well, the, the Pharisees were like that. Here's the law. And they go like, well, let's just lower it down. We'll lower it way down here so we can like, okay, gold medal for you. You're in, you know, kind of a thing. And so, but in trying to lower the law to make it so that they could keep it so-called, they ruined the law. They destroyed the law. They could never, the law was never given so that man could sort of keep it and feel good about himself. Never. And they lowered it. They lowered it way down here, way down, and, and prayed it about like on the outside, like, aren't I holy? God says, you, don't, you, you want to know what makes me sick? That makes me sick. That's an abomination. It's an abomination. You're lovers of money. You're external. You pretend like you're keeping the law. You can't keep the law. The law is holy, and you're not holy, and we're not holy, and we sin. And not to lower the requirements of the law so that we can sort of, sort of keep it and feel good about ourselves. That's what they were doing here. The law was given to, like a schoolmaster, to show us that we could not keep God's moral law and, 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 and brings us to Christ. Well, what's the final insight then? The Scriptures find their final fulfillment in Jesus. In verses 16, 17, and 18, the law and the prophets, that's referring to the Old Testament at that point. All of the Old Testament were until John. And here's John, the intertestamental, the last of the Old Testament prophets. That's John the Baptist. I mean, that's what the Lord is saying here. The law and the prophets, that's in other words, the Old Testament or the Scriptures were until John. And since then, the good news of the kingdom. Why? The king is standing in their midst, and he's preaching. He's preaching the gospel. And everyone forces his way into it. But it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Scriptures find their final fulfillment in Jesus. He's saying what here? He's saying, look, this is my book. This is my book. If you want to uh, what, what you and I need to do as we study the Scriptures is from cover to cover, look for Jesus. He doesn't just show up in Matthew. You know, some of you are like, well, I don't understand the Old Testament much. You know, like, I'm not really sure about that. and never was instructed in that. And anyway, Jesus was born on Christmas Day in Matthew. Isn't that it? So I'll start at Matthew two-thirds the way through, and then I'll find Jesus. Listen, Jesus is in chapter 1 of Genesis. Who do you think spoke the word there? We know that it was the Lord Jesus who spoke the word and everything came into being. 
He's the creator. He's there at the beginning. He's in the garden. He's all the way through. He's the seed of the woman. He's the the promised one of Abraham in chapter 12. Uh, He's uh, there in 22 at Isaac. The Lord shall provide. Father, where's the ram that we can? The Lord will provide. Jehovah Jireh. He's the one all the way through. He said he's the captain of the Lord of hosts. He's the one that wrestles. Notice he didn't play basketball. He wrestled with Jacob. Amen. Right, Dan? He wrestled with <laughs> Amen, right, Mark? I knew I'd get it there. Right, Ron? <laughs> Jim, I got a... Where's Jim? Oh, there you are. Okay. Jim would give a big amen on there. Uh, yeah, that's right. He, all the way through. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah in Genesis 49. All the way through. He's a greater than David. He's a greater son. David, look, all the way through, we're, we're longing for the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And if Solomon and David show us anything, it shows that they'll, they all failed. And we're waiting for the ultimate king to come. And here he is. From the Old Testament law and the prophets and even now to John. And John pinpoints him. Behold, he's the one. He's the one. It's the Lord Jesus Christ all the way through. So read your Bible in a Christological sense. Look for him in all the Psalms. Look for him in the history. Look for him in the shadows and the types and all of the stories that prefigure it all the way through. See him at the temple, the Passover, the Lamb, all the way through. This book is about Jesus from cover to cover. And none of it will pass away. None of it, not one jot nor one tittle. Could it ever pass away? Until it's all fulfilled. That's what he is saying here. This is a new era. The culmination of all of that. Something brand new. The Old Testament promised his coming. John pointed specifically to him. As Jesus went about preaching the the gospel, the multitudes pressed into the kingdom. But the idea here is, but not the religious leaders. They're snaring at him. But the others are pressing in. What's he mean by that? Forcing their way. It's a word violently forcing their way in. What does that mean? It's strange to our thinking. You're like, what does that mean? Uh, that uh, they're, they're forcing uh, their way in. Well, when someone wants to get into the gate you know, of an activity or a place, they, uh, they do whatever they have to, don't they? They do whatever they have to to get in. And uh, that's what he's referring to. Uh, some of you ladies, maybe uh, Boscoffs, you like, I go Boscoffing. It's funny how you take a noun and make a verb or a participle out of it. Have you Boscoffed today? No, no, I haven't, no. And there's a special there at 10, come at 8, come at 6. Come at, it gets crazier towards the end of the year with the holiday sales, right? And showing up, people camping outside, and the doors get open. What a sad story. That was a number of years ago. Was that a Walmart where people were, were run over and they died and get trampled underfoot, running in for a sale on something like that? They're charging and save a dollar. Yeah. I, Mark, I remember Ulysses told me when that, was it the Wii? He camped out all night at the, at the Target or something, right? Or Leah, camping out on the sidewalk to what? To get into the door because they had three of them or something. I don't know. They, there's a limited quantity. So people have a way of getting in. Or sports games are like that, right? Where they want to, they wanna, they're going to force their way in when the gate is open to, uh, to get a seat. And, and Jesus is saying, listen, not one, or the, the culmination of the age is something brand new is here. The king is here. And the crowds, look at them. They're thronging crowds, hearing him preach the gospel. But not you, Pharisees. You're standing outside, sneering, forcing into the kingdom. Uh, It means that when people finally understand the good news of the salvation, they do whatever it takes to press in, to come to Jesus. They're eager to get in when the gospel is preached. They, they do it. They, they, uh, they go and sell all their possessions to buy the pearl of great price. They do whatever they have to, you see, when they hear the glorious gospel straight up. And God calls them. They come a-running. It's, it's wonderful to see that. Uh, just like we see when Jesus preached, we see it in, in Luke 5. Remember when the men carried their, their buddy who was paralyzed and they broke through the roof and they entered down inside to get inside, to do anything to do it. 
Remember the woman in Luke 8 where she had an issue of blood and for many, many years she pressed through the crowd so I might just be able to touch the hem of his garment. People press in when God calls them and they come a-running to, to eagerly receive the Lord Jesus Christ. It's almost a, a violent sense, not really, but it's, it's that energetic forcing into the kingdom. Now, the Puritans used to call that. They didn't go for this easy believism stuff. Scratch your head and you're in, raise an aisle, walk an aisle, do this, sign a card. And those things aren't bad in in themselves. But the idea of really laying before the Lord, what is the gospel? Who am I? I'm lost and under judgment. And and what is the cross and the love of God? And what do I need to do? And they would prayerfully spend, spend time thinking about it, pressing. And they use the word pressing into the kingdom and would be wonderfully saved. Saved, and not sort of simply a head scratch and a decision, but wonderfully, wonderfully saved. Well, that's what they were doing. And don't think, and B, don't think that Jesus came to destroy the Scriptures. He said that in Matthew 5. He didn't. He came to fulfill them. And God's wonderful Word will never pass away. Never. Never. And a good way to think about the Old Testament uh, when you think about the law, sometimes you say, well, how is it? We don't do the, do the law type stuff. How is that apl- applicable today? Think of the law in three ways. This might help you. Ceremonially, civil, and moral. When you think of the Old Testament law, there's a lot of ceremony. The tabernacle, the offerings, the Levites, all of that. And all that is prefiguring through the priest, the high priest, the coming high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's all uh, almost typological in its way, showing uh, Christ and the sacrifices, the Lamb of God. So when you think of all that, it's pointing towards him. Read the book of Hebrews to see how that unfolds clearly. But then when you think about civil, Remember, it's dealing with a nation of families and people and, and torts and law and property and all these kind of things that uh, are, are good in any sort of society. And a lot of our laws and so on are built on that and, and so on. So that even if there's, a, let's say, uh, the cities of refuge in Leviticus, when someone is killed accidentally, God sets up the cities of refuge. Get yourself there quickly. And tell, it, tell the story to the town fathers there before the family comes and, and executes revenge. That's civil law, you see. And we have civil law today, and it's applicable. But the moral law of God, when you think of, 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 of thou shall not steal, and thou shall not covet, and thou shall... These, these things, you see, uh, these things are the moral law of God. They reflect the character of God, as all the law does. And they're timeless. They, they, they never go out of season. Never do they. And so um, the law has a lasting role uh, from one cover to to the other cover and throughout eternity. And so Jesus then goes on in the last verse here in verse 18. He illustrates the continuity of the law with an example of marriage and divorce. God's purpose and plan for marriage is always one man, one woman, one life. That's never changed. And now he regulates it because of the hardness of men's heart in the hardness of women's heart, and he does allow for divorce in limited uh, places. He doesn't uh, deal with that here at this point, but he does raise this as an issue. He does raise this here because the Pharisees had twisted God's simple teaching on marriage and divorce to make it such a no-fault, easy divorce, yet retain this godly holiness reputation that they desired, that the Lord picked that one. Now, he could have picked uh, words from their mouth. He could have picked they were thieves. He could have picked out uh, other different things, but he picked out this one because they, they were like serial monogamy, one after another, after another, after another, for no reason at all. Uh, through their uh, rabbis, and so was showing, listen, even this continues into the new era. And so in Jesus, in in other words, we cannot set aside God's law for marriage uh, any more than we can set aside the laws for anything else. And when you and I attempt to lower God's law so that you and I can keep it to justify ourselves, we destroy the law. Uh, we can't keep it. We never could, and we are. it judges us as sinners. And this is why, as I said earlier, the gospel is such good news. It's for sinners like us who have broken the law in every area 
And, uh, and our entrance into heaven is not based on anything that we do. But we are saved by grace. And it is all grace. And it is all of his, of his doing from beginning to end. And so he ends with an example of marriage and divorce showing that the, that the, uh, the Pharisees, uh, uh, he shows them up for uh, who they are. Well, what can we say by way of lessons for our life? You have it on your sheet. Uh, number one, as you talk to others about their need of Jesus as Savior, don't forget that you too were once blind and dead in sin. This will help give you patience with them as you pray that God would open the eyes of their heart and save them. That's what we need is, is patience. You know, sometimes we think, what's the matter? Are they stupid? Are they dumb? Don't they get it? How long did it take God to, to open your eyes? The God of this world has blinded them. And pray that God opens their eyes that they would see and save them. Number two, daily strive to love the Lord as the primary love of your life. He should be number one. Number one. Not money, not popularity, not stuff, not pleasure. Our world loves money and it loves sex. And they twist them all around. Don't be confused by that. Love him. Remember, and here's a thought, beware of drifting. And here's the thought, you never drift to him. Say, I'm drifting. You are toward him? No. Always away. Always away. A lot of times in the morning, I pray, Lord, I wake up in the morning, I go to bed, sleep, sleep. I always sleep really quite well. And wake up and Lord, I don't know, I'm sort of out of tune. I don't know, did I drift away during the night? Tune my heart to sing your praise today. I need to be retuned. Retuned. I'm drifting. We drift away. It's always away. Number three, know that as a Christian, your judgment for sin was paid at the cross in its entirety. However, you and I will stand before the Lord Jesus, if you know Christ, at the Bema seat of Jesus. That's for all Christians. 2 Corinthians 5.10, you can check that. We must all appear before the judgment seat. There the Lord will evaluate, and he won't mix our files up. Did you ever have that happen? Are you Joe Smith? Uh, no. <laughs> oh. <laughs> no, he knows. <laughs> he knows me. He knows you. Every one of us. We're standing there because we're righteous in Christ. It's given to us. But God will evaluate our heart and our life, and he is never confused. He won't mix me up from you, and uh, our life and works will be reviewed, and we'll give an account, and reward or loss of reward. The judgment seat of Christ. Number four, feed your soul upon God's wonderful word. It is delicious food for your soul. Don't you like delicious food? And some of you like French food. You're like, oh, that's so good. Three ingredients in French food. You know what they are? Yeah. Butter, butter, butter. Don't believe it. And if you believe it, practice that. We can set up an appointment at the undertaker, too. No, not really. Atkins likes butter, I think, doesn't he? Yeah, he does. Yeah. Yeah, well, he, he's, he died. <laughs> it's appointed unto men. Once to... Yeah, you got it. Okay. Uh, it's delicious food for your soul. Learn to feed yourself. Isn't that something with our little babies? We go down there when they really got to feel. Open up. Here comes the airplane. And they don't want it. They shut their mouths right at the time. And pretty bit by bit, they learn how to get it in. Faith told me the girls were all excited because she took chocolate. She, Faith's a great cook, and some of you know that, and a baker. It's surprising I'm not 400 pounds, but um, she took chocolate chip cookies down to the, to the grandbabies down there in uh, Georgia. And they're like, yeah, grandma's bringing that. And Faith was telling me the other night, she said, <laughs> she said uh, uh, I was showing the girl, I was teaching the girls how to make chocolate chip cookies. And they go like, well, Grammy, how does, she was seeing how they put it on the cookie tray, you know, like, how does that turn into a cookie? <laughs> and like Harper was all concerned about that and they were watching through the oven. <gasps> Grammy, it's turning into a cookie. What am I talking about? Oh, it's delicious. Learn to feed yourselves. You know, like we, we have to spoon feed babies. 
And some of you are still being spoon-fed. Learn to, to open the Word of God daily and feed your soul from God's delicious, wonderful Word. Be encouraged. God's Word is forever. Build your life on it. Uh, it's the best part of my day. Best part of my day. really is. Number five and last, judgment day is coming. Are you ready? Are you ready? You must receive the Lord Jesus as your Savior. And if you do, He will give you the gift of salvation. It's a gift. And in that gift, He'll give you Himself. Isn't that great? And we can sing, what a friend I have in Jesus. Today, come in prayer. Confess your sin, and He'll save you. Come just as you are. Don't have to dress up. Billy Graham sang that song, or had that song sung, Just as I am, without one plea. Don't dress up, don't shower up, don't, don't sort of get better, just come. Come, come to him. Lord Jesus, be merciful unto me, a sinner. I receive you as my Lord and my Savior. God knows our hearts. Wow. Father, thank you so much for the word. It's convicting. It's instructive. It's encouraging. Strengthen us in our hearts, Lord. Thank you for the continuity of Scripture, that it will abide forever and that it points us to Jesus. Help us to love you, Lord, with all our heart, our soul, and our strength. May we be known as that kind of people. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.